Okay, you can grab your seats, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to a church in Corinth, about 55 AD, five years after he planted it. The church is in a mess. He's gotten reports of all the different layers of dysfunction that are happening. So he writes this, which is probably going to be a second letter, but it's the first that we have. So it's called 1 Corinthians. Um, and in this first four chapters, he's really been hammering home the fact that they have their value system much more patterned off of ungodly culture than on what Jesus calls them to. And that's leading to a lot of, well, in the gentlest way of saying it, dysfunction, but all the way up to very abusive uh, behavior and destructive behavior within the church. And starting in chapter 5, we really start to hone in on some of the a bit more nitty-gritty issues. He's talked about division. He's warned about the dangers of pride and come back to certain themes about real leadership in the churches, about service. But now we're going to get into some of the X's and O's of the particular issues that people said, hey, Paul, this is happening. What are we supposed to do about it? Some concerned people were writing to him. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it'll be on the screen as well. You can open up a Bible. So Paul continues in chapter 5, and he says, It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So a few things to note here. The word, single word in Greek, from which we translate sexual immorality is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. Um, in our context, it tends to mean something specific. In their context, it meant any sexual activity outside of a male-female married relationship. So there was sexual activity obviously done with mutuality and care and love within marriage, which was holy and good and constructive and beneficial. Any sexual play outside of that covenant commitment just fell under the heading of porneia. So it was a broad term, and Paul says it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and it's of a kind that even the pagans, meaning non-Christians, the Corinthians around you, they don't even tolerate. So this was something that the Corinthians, who were famous for being very sexually liberated and free, they were even like, oh yeah, like this is a no-go for us. And that was a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the way that's worded, clearly um, indicates a stepmother. Father's probably not in the picture, either deceased um, or potentially could be off away on travel. This was strictly forbidden to have sexual, to, to marry and have sexual relationships with uh, even a step-parent was strictly forbidden in God's law given to the Israelites in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22. But in Roman culture, it was actually a capital offense. It was seen as being dishonoring towards the father. And so Corinthians, who were not Christians, they were like, yeah, this is a no-go for us. And yet Paul says, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around what's happening because there's a level of, I mean, in one sense, sin isn't even the fullest word because he wants to say, even the Romans would say this is 
sinful, but this is like way beyond that. This is something incredibly destructive. And then he says, and you're proud. So probably not everybody in the community, but a majority. And that word means puffed up. It's kind of like when you have an inflated view of yourself and you're like, yeah, like I am kind of awesome. And he says, so you have this happening within your community. Everyone knows about it. And as a community, your response is kind of like, yeah, look at us. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship, and that means to remove, to exclude the man who's been doing this? So Paul says, it's very strange because your reaction is, neato, look at us. My reaction has been, this is a case to grieve over and to be like, where have we gone wrong? And actually, we need to distance ourselves from this man. And notice, there's a little plant here. Notice, he doesn't talk about the mother-in-law. He just says the man. That's going to be important in a second. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, he says, I kind of have authority, even though I'm not there, but kind of through this letter and with my presence, you know, you know my teaching, I've already passed judgment in the name of Jesus on the one who has been doing this. On the one, not both of them, on the one. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Boom. There's quite a history of trying to understand what it means to hand this person over to Satan. I think the simplest, too long, didn't read argument is that Paul sees the local assembling of worshiping believers as being an outpost of the kingdom. Of course, we're a part of the kingdom of God wherever we go. Jesus said in Luke, the kingdom of God is within you. But when the community of faith gathers together and does life together and worships together, we see here alluded to, and then it's sometimes made more explicit in other writings, there's almost like this hedge of protection that spiritually protects that community. And once you are outside of that, once you remove yourself from it, it's kind of like a sheep removing itself from the flock. Your vulnerability spiritually goes up. And so what he's saying here is, what I want you to do is I want you to intentionally exclude this person from your fellowship, the, the, the big church word used to be excommunication or disfellowship. If maybe you know someone or have come from roots in Jehovah's Witness. So this is a physical boundary line. Like this person needs to be removed so that in handing him over to Satan, life on his own, he, like this is, the, this is the, we're not going to punish him. We're going to remove. And then maybe he's going to come to his senses like the prodigal in the story that by experiencing the consequences, God might actually save him, his soul on the day of judgment. So this is strong language. And then he comes back to this theme of their arrogance, and he says in verse 6, your boasting isn't good. Okay, so this is another level. So we have someone doing this. Oh, and I meant to say, when, it, when um, in the Greek, when he talks about how a man is sleeping with his father's wife, the more literal translation from the Greek is, a man has his father's wife, which means it wasn't like a one-off mistake. It's an ongoing, intentional, cultivated relationship. Okay, so that's important. 
He says, you're proud of this. And then he says, your boasting isn't good. So imagine this is happening within the community. People, all, almost all of them have backgrounds in a Roman culture that says, this is not just taboo, this is illegal. And yet there's a critical mass of people in the church that are kind of being like, look at us and like, look at like boasting. Now I, want, I want you to kind of run the gears here. What kind of understanding theologically, how are they understanding what it means to be a Christian that they would be able to, or at least many of them, be able to, some participate, we all acknowledge, we see it, we're proud of it, and we're boastful within the church and to our pagan neighbors about what's happening. Can you, how do they get there? Can you think of what little through line might have, even if it's a guess? It is kind of a little tricky. It's definitely connected to a Christian freedom thing. Anything else? I'm going to hold that because that's here. That's one dimension of it. So for sure, there's a lack of leadership. And so there's sort of a, well, what do you think? What do, what do you think? And Paul told us this, but maybe I kind of read Apollos differently. And, and, and who are these people? So yeah, there's now over these five years, there's been a slow, um, out of focus. Things aren't as sharp anymore. Can you think of another reason why you might? Yeah, they're looking and saying, the, these people over here have a huge problem with this. We don't, right? And, and aren't Christians called to be different than the world? So if the world is saying these things are taboo, maybe our freedom and power in Christ allows us to transcend those kinds of boundaries. Chris, what were you going to say? Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I'll just repeat it for those listening online. Um, a compassion narrative that just wants to be seen as inclusive and not be judgmental. And yeah, just kind of pushing this edge of like, well, who are we to judge? And let's just keep having an ever-expanding view. And I'm sure if, if it was really wrong, God would let the person know. Like, we don't want to be like the church police. So we'll just kind of let it go. But it's not just letting it go, though. Like, it's actually celebration. And part of that, I think, is also informed. All those things are really good, and you have to kind of pull them together. Part of it's also informed by a really corrupted spirituality that sees what it means to be spiritual, to have sort of the normal rules and constraints that apply to other people. It doesn't have to apply to you. Right? Now, we don't have it in this kind of way today, but we have it in other ways, right? We have people who, I've met people who will say things like, well, I know the Bible says I shouldn't be doing this, or I should be doing this, but I have my own walk with Jesus, and that's, that's fine. Right? It's, it's sort of the same, it's kind of the same idea. Like the rules, the principles, and the commands, and that's good for like the little kids, 
But like, come on, when you get to a certain level of spiritual maturity, you transcend those. And part of the evidence that you transcend those is you can do things that other people will say, oh, that's terrible. And it's like, but I'm not constrained by the legalism and the, the Ten Commandments, stuff like that. Like, I'm free in Christ. The Holy Spirit has empowered me to a new kind of life. And what you think freedom means is the freedom from constraints, the freedom from responsibility, the freedom from doing what God has clearly said to do or not do. Instead of understanding what freedom in Christ means is I'm freed from the power of sin. And I'm freed to live into God's priorities. And that's why Paul says, I can't believe it. He says in verse 7, get rid of the old. Sorry, he says your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. And again, he's talking to the community. He's saying you have someone who's promulgating, who's promoting this view that, in a sense, the Christian rules don't apply to them. And they get to sort of just... Who knows what kind of language that it would have used, right? Like, oh, I'm just walking in step with the Spirit. I'm not, I'm not about the rules. I'm just about loving Jesus. And who are you to judge me? Like, I'm a, I'm a, you're, you're no different than me. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Mind your own business. Uh, he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you will be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so he says, keep the festival, not with the old leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's riffing off this Old Testament um, festival of the Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance from slavery. Egypt is a metaphor for the oppressive power of sin from deliverance from that. And he says, don't celebrate your new life in Christ, the new festival, with malice and contempt towards the things of God. Don't keep living in sin. You don't get out of Egypt and then say, hey, Let's be rescued from Egypt, and then when we go here, let's recreate Egypt again and put ourselves in slavery. He says, no, live into the festival with unleavened bread. Christ died to free you from sin. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, that means mix, with sexually immoral people. I don't at all mean the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers. Or idolaters. That would mean you'd have to leave this world. So this is the reference to the earlier, right? I wrote you in my letter. So that's referencing the first letter. There's nothing so far in this letter that Paul said that. So that's one of the clues. This is like chronologically 2 Corinthians. He says, I wrote you not to associate. Don't mix with immoral people. He says, I didn't mean non-Christians. Are you kidding me? Then you'd have to be taken out of the world. You need to mix with non-Christians so that they experience the love of God in your life. He says, what I'm writing to you, he says, now I'm writing to you, I want to make it clear. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people on two levels. Don't share communion with them, but also don't eat with them. Because in the first century, when you eat with someone, you are signaling some level of, I want this person to be involved in my life. And Paul says, don't even eat with them. Don't eat with other Christians who are defined by sexual immorality, idolatry, slanders, drunkards, swindlers. That word slander can mean someone who slanders the reputation of other people. 
but it also more generally means just people who are verbally abusive. We would say, today we would say like an emotional bully. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you, as the community of faith, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy, a refrain that happens again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. Expel the wicked or the evil person from among you. Oof, that is an intense chapter. We're actually going to spend two weeks on it. because You've got to kind of marinate it, marinate in it for a little bit. There's a few things I want to plant this week, and then I want us to go back and think through it, and then come again next week into it and through it, because there's a lot here. Is there anything, though, before... I move into the summation of what I want you to take away today. Is there anything here that surprised you or stood out to you? Maybe you didn't notice it before. You're like, I don't think I've ever read that. Or that's interesting that that was said. Right, good. Yeah, that's right. Very good. So it's not just about these people aren't quite lining up the beliefs or they've got it wrong or they're new Christians and they're not articulating themselves well and then we get rid of them. This is about all of these behaviors are obviously and actively damaging to a community. If you have someone who is actively in an ongoing, intentional, prideful, boastful way expressing their sexuality in a destructive way or inviting people into idolatry, like literally worshiping other gods or being verbally abusive or being a drunkard, not being a productive member of the church, but being uh, out of control and in a sense in that time being a drain on other people, being a swindler, someone who's looking to exploit and manipulate and gain for themselves, those who are greedy, who are looking at the community through the lens of how can, how can I extract from you? How can I get more from this? How can I, I, I'm seeing everything through a self-centered lens. What is the culture that that creates in a church? Just what are words that you would associate with that kind of church culture? What's that? Yeah, mistrust for sure. Today in workplaces, you would call it a psychologically unsafe workplace. Tons of anxiety, deep stress, a sense of uh, perpetual, probably depression over certain, uh, after a certain amount of time. Because these are damaging to the relational fabric of the community. And so Paul is not calling out, oh, you just, you don't know how to explain the Trinity perfectly. He's talking about people who are boasting and moving into sin intentionally, and their attitude is like, look at me. I mean, if you're offended by it, like I said, that sounds like a you problem. I'm fine with it. And again, the key here is that final verse. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is not a chapter that's like, hey, what do we do when someone makes a mistake or someone's caught in a sin or struggling with sin? That's not what this chapter is about. Paul is saying, how do you deal with someone who is obviously, actively, intentionally 
maliciously undermining your community's ability to feel spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and psychologically safe. They're undermining trust. And he says, I don't give it any quarter. It's gone. And he'll say in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, we'll get to this next week, to restore someone who's caught in sin, you do it gently, you do it carefully. There's all, we'll talk about what does it mean to um, move towards someone who we are concerned is struggling with something. But this is a different category. This is someone who is wicked and who is evil. And if you don't want to believe there are people like that in the church, then you're naive. Because Jesus says, there's going to be wolves. The Greek word for a pastor is shepherd. And that's not just like, hey, hanging out with the sheep. The shepherd protects sheep from wolves. And that's what Paul is trying to do here. And he's saying, expel this man. Because probably the stepmother wasn't a Christian. He's like, that's God's business. We hold this person accountable. And they are destroying your community from the inside out. Not because they made a mistake. Not because they were caught in something and struggling against it. They are actively involved in a lifestyle of pornography and then baptizing it in, I'm just kind of at a different spiritual level. This doesn't even bother my conscience anymore. I must be spiritually liberated. And Paul says, your community should have heard that and gone into mourning. You shouldn't have been like, wow, this is someone that's kind of like, we're proud of this person. And we're boasting? Oh. Another quick question. Why does this happen? It happens all the time in churches. Even one person is actively abusive, malicious, clearly undermining anything that is healthy, choking out the ability of the community to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. People walk on eggshells around them. Why is it permitted to happen in the church? What are some reasons? Totally. So part of it is a hesitation that I don't want to be the person to cast the first stone. Good impulse. Why else? Um, tolerance. Again, we have this ever-expanding view, especially in our cultural time, where it's like, well, one of the worst things you can be called is intolerant. I don't want to be intolerant, so I'm going to always give the benefit of the doubt. I'll always absorb the abuse. I'll expect other people to absorb the abuse. Any other reasons? Right, right. Canadians are... Exactly. Canadians really, I mean, we certainly value our privacy. And we value our privacy. And kind of like Mike's point, once you start airing other people's dirty laundry, then you're opening yourself up to that. And again, those are good cautions because, yeah, you. I mean, some people have grown up in a church where this chapter wasn't about people who were actively abusive. It was just to anybody who someone else thought was in sin. And so Sunday morning was like nitpicky. And you're like, oh, should you be wearing that dress? It's too short. Or what about that hairstyle? Or what about this? Or the way you walked in? Or the way that you're saying these words? And it was just like nitpicky church police. And that's not the point here at all. The point is, Paul is saying to Kevin's, um, dovetailing with what Kevin says, 
people in process, people who are growing in their faith, people who are trying to follow Jesus and making mistakes along the way and learning and two steps forward, three steps, you know, one step back and then three steps forward. If people who are growing, we're gentle with, we're gracious. But if someone is wicked and evil and their behavior shows that, whose job is it to take the lead on confronting it? Yeah, for sure. And we'll talk about Matthew 18 next week, Jamal. That's great. Yeah, so Jesus talks about a process of confronting a brother or sister. But in this context, who's the person that's supposed to take the lead? That's my job. Paul says, I'm not even there. I'm with you in spirit. I'm dropping the hammer. Now you guys just play it out. And there's a lot of abuse in the church that is allowed to linger and fester like yeast through dough, like a cut in the ankle that now spreads through the body because of pastoral cowardice. Yeah, totally, right? And that's what we're hearing more and more. Stories of, well, it's sad because we, this got out of hand because the pastor was turning a blind eye, or maybe that person gives a lot, maybe they're really influential, whatever it is. They know the right thing to do, they come up with a justification to just let it ride, maybe the Holy Spirit will, notice Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, well, this is super destructive, but just commit them to the Holy Spirit and let them bring conviction and keep absorbing the abuse while it happens. He's like, no, you cut it off. We don't need to pray about it. This is active destruction. Now the question is, what happens when it's the pastor or church leadership? We'll get to that next week a little bit more. So I'm going to hold that. But again, there are many, many, many stories of people whose faith is shipwrecked because of not just pastors not confronting toxicity in the church, but actually being the source of it, right? And it's really easy as a congregation to start saying, well, they do a lot of good and I like their teaching and they made a huge impact on my life at a critical time and no one's perfect. And yeah, you know, just got anger issues and sometimes he flips tables and drops some F-bombs in like SLT meetings. But like, look at all the good, like there's all kinds. And so we'll talk about that next week. It's a very, very important question. Let me just leave you with three bullet points, and I'll return to these next week because I don't have time to play them out. Takeaways number one for every Christian, God does not, God frees you from sin, not frees you to sin. Freedom and forgiveness in Christ is not a license to sin. We have to understand that. And we should never, we should always be very scared if we start playing with an idea that says, so wait a sec, I can do whatever I want and just ask Jesus to forgive me? Amazing. That's like a pretty great deal. That shows something's gone wrong in our understanding. Number two, we should not be afraid to remove toxic influences from our lives. This is Paul's direction to the church, but it also applies to families, to marriages, workplaces. It is not a wrong thing to say, I will not abide your presence and activity in my life any longer. I think, again, we'll talk next week. There's a difference between someone who's learning and growing and making mistakes, and we have to have grace for people, but there still is a line that says we don't have to put up with this anymore, especially if there is clearly ongoing wicked and evil and malicious intent. It is not a wrong thing to say you are no longer allowed into my life. You are no longer allowed into this church. I have not had to say that very often in terms of my career to people, but I have said it to people. Number three, confronting evil within the church 
is actually a gospel witness. It actually glorifies God. I was listening to a podcast about deconstruction. That's a word that can mean many things, but one of the phenomenon that people, the podcasters recognized is many people who are deconstructing their faith or deconverting, leaving the faith, is because what they saw in their church was their church permitting abusive sin, ongoing, intentional, while decrying sin out in the culture and in society. And they said, even if they could only feel it when they were a child or a teenager or an adult, being like, this is like BS. We have reversed this. Paul says, we don't have any... We don't have anything to say to the outside world except Jesus loves you, Jesus can save you. You need to turn from your sin. Inside, we have a lot to say. And people saw a church on the inside saying, well, I know that person's creepy and maybe pseudo-harassing, but like, they give a lot of money. I'm like, what can you do? I know this person has caused a lot of harm. Yeah, they're kind of like a bull in a china shop, but like, they've been a member for like 40 years. I know that Jeff can rub you the wrong way and um, it can feel bullying. We had six people come to Christ last year. Confronting evil in the church is actually an important part of how we witness to the world. So three things. God frees us from sin, not for sin. We must not be afraid to remove toxic influences from our lives. And confronting evil, again, not mistakes, not people in process, not people journeying, people living and committed and boastful and prideful about sin, we must be willing to confront that. I'm saying that to myself. I'm saying that to our SLT and anybody who's going to be on the SLT in the future. And I say that to other people if God forbid we ever got into a place where it was the leadership doing the evil and it had to come up from other people. Okay, that's a, that's a heavy. That's not like a summary sermon, but, but important, let it steep, because this is, 1 Corinthians 5 is about protecting the church so that the culture is healthy and safe and good and not abusive. And people don't walk in these doors and like, I hope this person's not here today or they're avoiding people, or children who are a part of our church and ministry, they grow up not feeling anxious, and they can't figure out why, because people are walking around on eggshells. They're like, this is a safe place. This is a welcoming place. This is a place that is gracious. But I also know there's shepherds here that will protect me from wolves. And that's part of why I like this place. I never doubt that I'll be protected here. And that's not just for the kids. That's for all of us, too. So let's be praying those things this week. God, this is a heavy, and Paul drops a heavy in Corinthians 5. Oh, it's a burden to me to think about all the ways that we as leaders can be tempted towards justifying, turning a blind eye. God, if there is evil and wickedness in our midst, give me and our SLT the courage to confront it, and to confront it wisely and well and faithfully. God, help us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Carson, are you good for a final song? Awesome.